The Zone Coverage Podcast Network. Back at it with another edition of Perkett Pod. For those wondering, Perkett Pod is inspired by my other moniker, Perkett Play. It's my name on just about every social media handle I have as well. And it's also a segment I've been doing at CARE 11 since 1998. It's a segment I still do, still love to do, and I can tell you without any wavering that the reason I do it is because, hey, I get to get out of the sterile studio every once in a while, but also because of the experiences I get. I've been able to skydive. I've been able to ski jump. And I've been able to drive in a demolition derby and act out road rage. I've been able to ice sail across a frozen lake. I've been able to get body slammed by Brock Lesnar. I've been put in a figure eight leg lock by Ric Flair. Or was it a figure four leg lock? I don't know. It freaking hurt, though. I've been taught how to hit homers by Jim Tomey, been schooled by Lindsey Whalen in Nerf basketball. Through the segment, I've been also able to meet such amazing people. I think that's my favorite part about it, for real. Uh, from those high-profile sports stars I aforementioned to those average Joes and Josephines concocting all sorts of makeshift sports games and recreations in their backyard or wherever they want to do it. And I think it's also part of why I appreciate this episode's guest so much. Mike Veck is all about the experience. This is a guy who grew up fully immersed in the game of baseball. His father, Bill Veck, a baseball legend, frankly, a Hall of Famer, owner of a few different major league teams, a few different, think about that, a few different major league teams, not just like one. Most owners are just one team, right? This guy owned several. He's an innovator, for sure, uh, a guy who changed the game for the better. His son, Mike, uh, has made his mark big time, too. A true ringleader, owner of our beloved St. Saint Paul Saints. He actually owns other minor league teams, too, uh, which brings me to Random Ranks. All right, this time on Random Ranks, uh, what are the best minor league team nicknames? That got me thinking when I started talking about that. So here goes my top 11 minor league team nicknames. This is very intense research, mind you, okay? Uh, number 11, the Charlotte Stone Crabs. Just solid. I love crustaceans. Number 10, the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs. I think this is on a lot of people's favorite minor league team lists. Just can't deny it, top 10 for sure. The Salt Lake Bees. I'm just a really big fan of bees. I really like yellow and black together. I think it's a good franchise. I think it's a good name. It's just so simple, and there's so many ways you can play it into the, into the marketing and branding. Number eight, the Wisconsin Timber Rattlers. I think they're in Appleton. It's a sweet name. This one, I don't even know what this name means. <laughs> and I think it's, I, I swear, I think this is real. I, I Googled it. I, I, I vetted it. It's, it's legit. Uh, this is number seven, the Amarillo Sod Poodles. I, can you, like, I don't, I honestly, I don't know. The number six, uh, Montgomery Biscuits. Number five, the Everett Aqua Socks. <laughs> Just think, I mean, what are you doing? Like, what's your mascot, Aqua Socks? Number four, the Biloxi Shuckers. Just because I used to live down south and... Uh, I think that's shucking oysters, frankly. It's not shucking corn, for, for the record. Number three, the Pulaski Yankees. <laughs> I don't know. I just I'd throw that in there. Number two, Altoona Curve. I, I don't know what this is in reference to, but I think it's a sweet name for a baseball team. And number one, this is an even, and this is another like one where I just don't really get it. And I don't want to get it. I don't want to even research it because I just I like the name so much. I, I, feel, I feel like if I really knew what it meant, I wouldn't like it as much. Uh, number one, the Williamsport Crosscutters. And I, 
I'm going with that. All right, let's just deal with it. Honorable mention, St. Paul Saints. How about that? Just because. Uh, he is an incredible character. He's had a massive influence on the Minnesota sports landscape. Mike Vex's motto, fun is good. And it should be noted, this interview took place before the St. Paul Saints won the American Association Championship this year. Congratulations to them. Here now that conversation with Mike Vex from his offices out in right field of CHS Field. Perk. And so here he is, the esteemed Mike Vec. What's esteemed mean? I don't even know. <laughs> for, for crying out loud. All, what I do know is that we are in, this is your office, right? Yes. Okay. And this is the fun and games department, as you can tell. It's inhabited by an old guy. It's, it's, there's a lot to take in. I'm, there I, is. A, I'm, I'm stimulated, let's just say. But the view here is exquisite. And now we're like in the, like just off of right field, back behind the, the, the Treasure Island ship. Yes. And this is your, your view, you get to see just a, a CHS in all its glory. And even more importantly, it's the human parade that goes by. So people know, if they're kids, they know they stop kind of and peer longingly at the new toys and the additions so that I have to get up and go out and give them a couple so we can test market the stuff. But it's really a great place both to, to watch the ball game and watch the parade. I love that. It's like the soft parade, like Jim Morrison said, here they come. You and I actually have a, a weird thing in common. Um, we both followed in our father's footsteps to a, to, to a degree, right? I mean, yes. I, you obviously... Well, I followed in my father's footstep. He only had one leg. So is that, you followed... Wait, is that true? You, yes. Oh, oh my God. And, and you followed... I was, I was trying so hard not to laugh because I never know when you're being serious. You're allowed to laugh when, it's, when I make the joke about my dad not having a leg to stand on. I'm allowed to... I'm, I'm allowed to say that. Okay. If you said it would be offensive. And, of course, you followed Jack, who did have both his legs. He, yes, but, but, and still but does. But quite a reputation, and so that was does. pretty nice. Yeah, and, and so yeah, so I went into broadcasting, and you went into this, this fantastic game of baseball, which I know you so adore. How, how did it all come up? First of all, what was it like having Bill as, as dad? Well, it was easy for me. You know, I look at the Kennedy kids – kind of the, the people that when I was growing up were really Camelot and, and um, Caroline and John. And I think they were in fishbowls and life was really, really difficult. What made it, I think, even more difficult was that there was money. What made it easy to be a vec was that my old man was busted so many times during his career um, that there was nobody spoiled. Everybody went to work early. He had a great work ethic. My mom had a great work ethic. So it was easy that way. There wasn't, you know, hey, maybe I'll go to finishing school. You know, you went to work at 13 or 14. So it was easy. And they also never talked about money. We were a very Catholic family, but you talked about sex more than you talked about money. So that there was never any emphasis. And my mother, who'd been the publicist for the Ice Capades, the first female publicist, used to take her children, of which there were many. I mean, she had nine of us to train, and she would say... There's nine of you? Nine of us. And they Where like do you baseball. fall? Do you... I, I'm the oldest of my moms. My dad was married before, so there were three... Okay. 
I have a brother, um, two brothers and a sister um, from dad's first marriage, and then I was the first. And she would take us in, um, and she would say to, to this to the little room, as we like to used to say, and she'd take it out of earshot of anyone else, and she'd say, your father will occasionally be in the newspaper. You never acknowledge it. At what, at what age was this? Probably seven or eight when you go to school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah she yeah. said, you just never acknowledge it. And if somebody says something nice about your father, then you thank them very quietly and say, and it was really great advice. And because that was her business, publicity, and obviously my dad, you know, raised money to buy clubs through publicity, but it was the greatest advice because she said, you know, Johnny's father is a candlestick maker and, a, and, and someone else is a, is a fisherman and, yep. and, a, and a laborer or a brick mason. And so we grew up not thinking that there was anything special about having your name in the paper. It just kind of came with the, it was great. I tried to do the same thing with my children because it was so effective. Where was home? Well, that was another thing was I was always the new kid because home was, they knew us more by the state in which we were born and every kid was born in a different state. Um, That's awesome. Because back in those days, you know, you followed the work. Yeah. I, well, I was born in Hong Kong because my dad was covering Vietnam for NBC News at the time. So, I mean, there you go. I moved when I was two, but as I don't remember a bit of it, but, but I can always say, yeah, I was born in Hong Kong. Yeah, and I was born in Tucson, and it was the same thing. And so we moved 17 times in the first 11 years of my life. Oh, jeez. How disruptive, though. <laughs> oh, like and, and imagine just just the logistics of moving a family of that many kids. Yeah. You know, my mom is, everybody says, well, you got this from your dad. But it was really my mom who taught me the organization skills um, that you apply to creating promotions or to running. She was really the unsung hero because I watched her. Just move. This is like moving a small village. You, yeah, you would have to be totally organized by the 16th time. Right? Yeah, you know, you'd be like, where's Arizona? Oh, God, we left him. Where? <laughs> We've got to put out an APB on him. So, but, but much, like, much like your dad's work, it does make it easier to go into a, a business where you meet people constantly. Um, and the downside is, is that, at least for me, was that I never really established early on friendships. So I have issues with people, abandonment and things like that because we were just constantly moving. When did you get the baseball bug? Well, I was going to be, you know, I, I was going to be the next early win. That was always my, was my hero, Gus Early Win, and I loved baseball from the age of seven. We moved to Maryland in, in, uh, in 1961, so I was 10 and I played Little League and... American Legion and Pony League and high school baseball. And it was um, in a game against uh, Delaware that I threw two curveballs that heretofore used to scare people like crazy. At what age are you throwing curveballs? I was throwing curveballs when I was 12. That's awesome. And I could break them off like nobody's yeah. business. And so I got a little spoiled. I didn't throw very hard, but I could put the ball right across the plate. Constantly, I had great control. The problem was I couldn't move it in or out. Okay. They knew exactly where coming, I was going. And it was coming right in the middle. And my old man came to see me one day, and the first batter was a kid from third base out of Delaware, and he hit a ball that qualified him to work with Shorty Powers and NASA. That's how far that it was ball a moon was ball. hit. Yeah. 
Okay. And the second guy up hit one even further. So we're driving home. It's very quiet. My father goes, as a ball player, McGill, you're a great drummer. <laughs> and so that kind of ended my... I never wanted to work in the baseball. Business. I love how that, that, that exact quote stays with you through all these decades. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and you know something? I've used it when I moved into this business, and especially with independence, and had to release players myself. I've, you know, what he did was very wise, and it made it very easy for um, me to understand that he loved me dearly, and he wasn't being any way, but I wasn't going to fool anybody. And so I, uh, I actually joined a rock. The day I got out of Loyola, I joined a rock and roll band, spent the next three years on the road. What were you playing? Loved my drumming. Okay. And then learned to play um, guitar over the years. But he called me in November, and we were not close. Uh, it's probably a little stiff to say we were estranged, but we were not close. Okay. And he called me and he said, um, let's let's have lunch. And that was a euphemism for let's go drink some beer. Okay. So I met him and, uh, and we had a few glasses of beer. And about 10 o'clock that night, he said to me, I want you to come to Chicago and work with me. And I was so blown away. And just the way your expression changed then hearing the story. That's how I was. I couldn't believe it. I was thunderstruck. Yeah, for, for, for those of you at home, I, my jaw dropped and my eyebrows raised both in simultaneous motion. Yeah, yeah. there it is. I was just blown away. Yeah, like that. And I, I, before I knew it, I said yes. And of course, I had terms. I had terms. And that was, I was going to stay two years. Okay. Because I said, you know, I, nobody wants to be born your son. I mean, you're, you're a legend. You know, well, we'll talk about yours after. Well, no, your he was, so he was at what, at what age were you at this point? I'm I was 23 or 4. Okay, and so he was already with the White Sox? Yeah, yeah. he'd already won a, uh, a world championship with the Indians in 48. He'd had the hapless Browns who became the Baltimore Orioles. He'd had the White Sox, which he then won a pennant with and had to sell for health reasons. That's how we ended up in Maryland. So we're having this conversation before his, his comeback. Okay in 1975 and so i said i'll come and work for you for two years and then i have to go because i'm not really interested in a career where i'm following you know a guy like you it's just not what i want to do you wanted to make a name for yourself and you wanted to kind of steer clear of or yeah. whatever else right? it was just it was you know i mean there were difficulties to it it wasn't wasn't okay. you know romantic but it, it was just sometimes it was easier to not deal with it I went to Chicago, worked for the White Sox, endured all of the behind-the-back comments about being an owner's kid and nepotism and all that. Was that thick? It Did was very tough. Yeah. It was very tough. But you know what? You outwork them. And that was something my folks taught me. You outwork them. And after a year and a half of 16-hour days, I was as accepted in that front office. And then... I, I, and I learned the business by osmosis. But we should mention 75. I mean, that was kind of the, the height of the hysteria almost, right? With with the White Sox and what he was doing with them and how he was sort of groundbreakingly changing the game, right? Yeah, he had, he, he really had, um, you know, he was fresh off testifying on behalf of Kurt Flood, which made him untouchable with the other owners. He had just lived his life 
before there was the term the outlier is an outlier. He had no real interest in being part of the club. He had the first African-American and Larry Doby play for the Indians. He had Satchel Paige. He tried to buy the Phillies in 42. He operated um, the uh, uh, Milwaukee um, Brewers when they were a minor league double-A team ironically and so he had all of this all of this history and all of this working knowledge but by osmosis you knew what to do fans loved him the fact that the owners hated him players and fans loved him. that made him way more accessible right exactly. that he wasn't part of the club exactly he yeah. never sat in a box he wandered around the ballpark. He sat in the bleachers. He took his shirt off. He sunned. When he and Harry Carey combined forces, Harry had worked for Gussie when Dad had the St. Louis um, Browns. And, and Harry had been very instrumental in driving Dad out of St. Louis. So they moved to Baltimore in 1953 to become the 54 Baltimore Orioles. But Harry had been... You know, Gussie Bush's henchmen, I mean, Gussie bought the Cardinals and they looked down the road at these St. Louis Browns and they go, we're going to run these little guys out of town. Let's bankrupt them too. Okay, (laughs) sounds like fun. So in 1975, I'm watching my old man and this is what he did. He hired Harry. I said, the guy cost you a lot of money. He said, it's business. He's a pro. He's the best. Bottom line. I'm going to get him. Or or keep your enemies close, right? Yes. Either one. Yes. I, I, I believe a little bit of both. I, he never had a thumb, well-thumbed copy of Machiavelli, but I think he committed it to memory. <laughs> <laughs> so now, like those days with the White Sox, because that was like, you know, the disco is dead, and that was the, the, the wearing shorts in the games, am I right? And the collared jerseys, and the, there were so many things that were happening with that, with that franchise and that organization. And he was sort of at least attributed to him as being the, the, you know, the marionette pulling the strings, you know, the guy that was making it all work. He did um, a, a thing that, that I have attempted to emulate here. At, at CHS with the Saints. And that is, he let people, he hired the best people he could find. Intellectually, he hated yes men and women. He huh. wanted a good argument. Yeah. And 77, except for the year we founded the Saints, the modern day Saints in 93, 77 was my favorite year in baseball. And you say, well, what? It was the curtain call. Jim Spencer hits a home run, and they won't stop clapping until he steps out of the dugout and tips his hat. Nancy Faust starts to play for an Oak Lawn Saloon, Na Na Hey Hey by Steam, Kiss Him Goodbye, and suddenly the fans are singing when a relief pitcher's coming in or we send somebody to the showers. They're singing Na Na Hey Hey. Zisk Richie Zisk, Zisk. hit wow. 31 home runs. Yep. Oscar Gamble hit 30. Okay. Probably would have hit 34 if the throw didn't get in the way. That's right. Yeah. Very good call. Yeah. Oscar, I mean, um, um, Eric Soderholm. Oh, my gosh. Third base, right? Eric Soderholm hit 25 and was the comeback player of the year. The White Sox, we ended up in third place. The last game of the season, Eric, I'm sitting in the stands and I'm watching 25,000 people. We finish in third place. They don't want to leave. That's awesome. They're singing. 
Yeah. An hour and a half goes, now I'm starting to pay these guys. And I'm like, so I called upstairs to the press box <laughs> and I said, Dad, what do you want to do? <laughs> Impromptu and I, concert. And he said, let them sing. And it was the most wondrous celebration. But all these things that happened, skyboxes were invented on the south side, all the party areas. We had the patio and we had the corner saloon and we had the bullpen. He was open to all of it. Just come to him with an idea and then get it done. Because, do you think that this sort of second incarnation of his career coming back from that and, and, and re re starting things with the White Sox there does, was, and you mentioned that he kind of went rogue from the other owners was, was, did he kind of just apply all that to that? I don't give a crap what you think anymore. And it just, it sort of revolutionized the game. To I'm going to tell you something Be, just because, because you and I have kind of similar, similar backgrounds. We used to buy these. He used to buy, he and my mom would buy these ramshackle big houses out in the country all wood and we would practice fire drills what yes what? we would practice fire drills now the reason that i mentioned this this is like beyond a non sequitur right you're thinking <laughs> oh my god get a i gotta call a fire truck i gotta put this guy out my job was to take a box of ideas a wooden box filled with every matchbook every cocktail napkin yeah. and make sure it got to safety if there was a fire. And whose who's ideas? This was your dad's? My mom and dad's. Okay, I mean, mom and dad's. Nobody grabbed any stuff. There was nothing off the walls. There was nothing materially that had any value. This is before the cloud. But this was the... <laughs> right. But this was the box. This was, I was carrying the cloud, baby. You're right. Never yeah. thought of it. And so imagine... I'm 10 years old or 11 years old having this fire drill in Maryland. There isn't a parking meter within four and a half miles. And all my parents care about is grabbing this box Get of the ideas. Box. And that box went to Chicago. And when he opened Pandora's box, all of these ideas that he had been working on for years because he'd been out of baseball, I think, since 1961. Came to life. So it's 14 years, and that's where all the ideas came from. But it gave a child a tremendous lesson in what's important, how important ideas are and how unimportant stuff is. Interesting. It's like, And it's like Jumanji, where it's just, it, it opens it up. And, and, and then, like, how, if, if you weren't as, like, close to him... Did that develop over time or did you start Baseball. to get close? Baseball got you guys the together. The healing power of... In 1975, I wanted no part of it. I knew everything. I was whatever you were, 24. Of course you did. I was the smartest guy in the world. Yeah. And um, when I left and we sold the ball club, I owned a piece of the White Sox that I had converted paychecks and a little money I'd find here and there. And when we sold in February of 81, there was nothing left to say. He died five years later and I was not there at his bedside when he died because I didn't have to be. There was nothing left. These two guys who had virtually nothing in common except a love for the game ended up with nothing. And every day when I walk out on to CHS Field or in Charles, wherever the ballpark is, I think about how this relationship was solidified by this silly 
game that we both so loved. Mm-hmm. That's awesome, though, to have that. And to, yeah. And, to, and so, so, and do you almost hold him? In, is it does it grow over time? Your reverence and sort of respect for him, almost, or you know, does he become more? storybook or is he still so real and raw oh he's very real yeah he's very real um and you know he he was he was elected to the hall of fame in 91 posthumously because he would never have been elected alive because he'd still be talking and <laughs> I, you know i mean they just but but when i go to cooperstown um, and Jeff Idelson, who just who just actually today is his last day at the Hall of Fame, and I love Jeff Idelson. He was president for twenty some years, but he would open it for me, and I would sit there the way people visit a monument or a tombstone or or the wherever your loved one is resides after their death, and I would sit in the Great Hall um, and look at his plaque, which was just down from Larry Doby's. Oh, perfect. These two guys were so intertwined and Henry Greenberg. And that's where I feel closest to him. And I go there for the soul. I go there to kind of rejuvenate because um, there was never, he died broke. There was never, it was never an issue about money. He knew he was never going to be elected to the Hall of Fame. So we knew he was never going to be elected because he'd been so such an outlaw all his life but it was such an affirmation and when we came here in 93 i built a monument to my mother and father i make no bones about it that's what i was looking to do was to replicate that 77 year when everything we tried worked i mean harry carey this is going to crush your listeners, but I got news for you, professional Cub fans who are so annoying. Oh, I love this. Go, go, I go. I just want you to know that Harry did not start singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game" on the north side. And the reason you play day games is because you guys don't have jobs. Us White Sox guys have jobs. We have to go to work during the day, so our games are at night. And Harry started singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game" on the south side with the White Sox. As Comis- painful as that is for you. Comiskey, baby. And by the way, if these mics weren't in the stand right now, that would have been an official drop. That was uh, just impressive. But then you talk about this sort of like this temple, this monument here, and what you've done and what you've built and what you've created here with the St. Paul Saints. And I know it, it, it takes a village, right? But it, but uh, to, to see... And, Talk about this team's success. And and I know you guys had success back at Midway and you had a lot of proud moments there and you really d- did things in a revolutionary fashion and a rogue fashion often. Um, how, how, is, how is Midway and, and CHS, how, how has the experience changed? How have you guys evolved? How do you feel like things have gone? And I know the attendance, we can get to the attendance in a bit, but, but first of all, just talk about that transition of the St. Saint Paul Saints from where they were to where they are now. I think one of people's, one of, one of the fans' favorite questions is, how did you know this was gonna translate, transfer from Midway, which was basically a county fairground, yep, to of ultra, almost dare I say, sophisticated downtown ballpark. And the truth is, we didn't. I didn't have a clue. I was terrified, like any small business operator. You really were. I was scared to yeah. death. But the one thing I had faith in was always what Dad had said. 
And that was hire the best people you can and stay out of the way. They will take care. And so we never were going to replicate what happened. For example, it was a huge we came here and outdoor baseball didn't exist. First time I did an interview, somebody said, what do you think about outdoor baseball? I'm like, what does that mean? It never occurred to me that they were the Twins were still playing in the Metrodome. I was just like, "How? Well, oh yeah, that's right, you got that, you, you got that Teflon cover. Well, that certainly helped us. But we were fun as good, which was only used one time in Dr. Seuss, it must have subconsciously been there. We did it before. Life is good. Where, where, where in Dr. Seuss was fun is good? Fun is good is in. Do you remember? Uh, no. Okay. I don't. Okay. Um, but it is appears one time in. I don't think it's Green Eggs and Ham because I've read that. But your crack team will find it, and then we'll we'll know exactly where it is. So I typed the I typed the first three words of the of the marketing plan is fun is good but i went looking for specific people i wanted people who had no experience in baseball bear in mind i'd done 7 years with the white Sox. once i blew up the disco records i wasn't really welcomed back and then i started again in 90 with the uh, miracle which later affiliated with the twins and we we moved to fort myers so i had a bunch of ideas saved up just like we'd done but i came i had larry monroe with the white Sox. And I were friends. I said, why don't you put some money in this? He goes, not a chance. You're going to be out of business. I came here and everyone said we'd be out of business. Fun is good is what we sold. And when Target Field opened, we were still selling fun is good. And that's our niche. And everybody's on board. And, and everyone is on board. Because what happens is 35% of the people who went to see my grandfather run the comes, my grandfather, then my father run the White Sox. 35% of the seats are inhabited by baseball fans who don't want any of the fun and games department. That leaves 65% of the universe. Which is stark. I mean, that's significant. You aren't kidding. Yeah. And so that's who the Saints played to. If I had opened, if it fails, it's me. If it's successful, it's we. If I had opened and said, we're going to play some of the great baseball you've ever seen. We'd have closed down in 45 days. Right. If you're going to see the best baseball, you get right on the green line here and ride right over to Target Field. That's the greatest baseball played in the world. That's just the way it is. Although you guys are in first place in 25 wins or whatever. Yeah, but yes, yes, I totally know what you're saying. I, but, I'm not... but you're right. It, 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 for We're tremendously entertaining minor league baseball of a double A, unless the pitching's great, it's triple A. But fast forward to this year, we're in first place. The Twins are in first place. And what's great about it is you still have to get on the green line to go see the greatest baseball played. But if you want to have fun, you don't want to mortgage the house, you come here. And the difference, we did tremendous number of families at Midway. Families came all the time. It's not that we don't do families here, but we do young adults, high school kids, college kids. This is kind of a hip place to be. You've just that, branched, you've branched out. And, yeah, that and, caught me. But you've embraced the, the, the spirit of, of, of this beautiful city, too. I mean, and, and, and being here allows you to do that probably more than, than you ever were able to do at Midway. Well, and, and think about just the, there are, Bob Sinkler um, was one of the, the real leaders who, who got behind early on with security and, and, 
and Doug Baker at Ecolab and these guys, but they never were at Midway. And they were lovely about it, but they said, Mike, you know, we bring people to town. We want them to see the downtown of St. Paul. So when we came downtown, suddenly we had a new corporate structure that we'd never had out at Midway. Suddenly we had people who could walk to the ballpark. So we had a real urban ballpark. So I drew on all of my experience in, you know, Chicago on the south side where people would walk to games yes take the l and yes so um and it's always been street theater the whole thing is you know everybody's telling you you hear it 400 times a week in your line of work oh my god the game is so slow it's so boring what major league baseball has to do right now is one get a leader like adam silver like he has done with the nba greatest commissioner in my lifetime no question about it he is going to go down in the annals as the man that's what I think. And number two is take some ideas from minor league baseball and have some fun in the stands between games and between innings. Make it a little more entertaining. If you're going to charge the amount of money you charge at the major league level, and I've worked for four major league teams. I got 10 years in the big leagues. It's not like I'm sitting here in St. Paul talking out of, you know, both sides of my mouth. You got to entertain the fans Nobody comes up to me and goes, Mike, you got to shorten the Saints games. We had a rain delay the other day. We probably held it too long. That comes right from my old man. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but the fact is, is nobody comes and goes, boy, your games are too long and boring. Because there's constantly stimulation. There's street theater. There's art. There's plantings. There's things to see. How much of an active hand in all that? And all the goings on within the in-game entertainment, do you have a hand in? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, how how much do you approve or even co- concoct yourself? I don't. I make contributions like every member of the staff now. Okay. For the first 20 years at Midway, I had a, I, I had a lot of driving influence. But I've got a better crew now than I ever ran it. I mean, Derek and Tom and um, the recently retired Annie Heidekoper. I mean, I have some of the giants. We have five broadcasters. In your line of work, we have five broadcasters in the big leagues, for God's sake, who started that's, with that's, the St. Paul Saints. That's it's impressive. Astounding. Absolutely. Yeah, it you is. Know? Our groundskeeper, Nick Baker, we had the first woman who won the Golden Rake Award. Nick Baker just was picked up by the Mets as the number two guy. You know, he went from, from CHS Field to Milwaukee to run spring training in Chandler or wherever it is. And then went to the Mets. So it's developmental. For the first time in Major League Baseball's history, they're looking to the minor leagues. And but you're do, what the you're, front office. But where you, what you're doing here is is astounding to a degree. Because and, I, and probably not to you because you've had the vision and you 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 have great people around you. So it probably doesn't surprise you too much. But but um, on a grand scale of attendance numbers throughout minor league baseball where where attendance throughout all of baseball at every level is dwindling and tapering off you folks not you sell out just about every game i mean are you sort of like the envy are people trying to figure out what what is the what is the magic blueprint they've got there well i i mean everything comes back to the fan and that was the thing that you know Dad put the names on the back of uniforms. Because a fan came up and said, I'm not going to buy a program, you bum. Programs, 10 cents. 
Who can afford a program? I want to know who that handsome lad over there is. Yeah. And he looked at the lady and said, we have to do something about that. So the point is, is that great ideas come from the fans. And as long as you keep listening to them, it keeps your product fresh. And that's what, it makes me laugh. We had people from Australia and people uh, two weeks ago from New Zealand. And people come from all over the world, one, to see the architecture because there's no other ballpark that's ever won an A1A architectural award. I mean, this is the ballpark. And so from a design standpoint, they come to see something so radically different. But what they come to see is you say, you just listen to your fans, just sit on the stands and let them come to you with ideas. And I think for the first time since we've moved to CHS, people have really given this ball club and the people here, Sierra and, and, and the talents that we have here, Sean Aronson, their due. Yep. And they're finally going, hmm. And, you know, they come in and go, we're going to take Tom. I took Tom Whaley to Tampa with me. And we, well, I worked for the Devil Race for seven months and got fired. And he lasted almost three years. And, and so people don't want to leave here because they're appreciated. And, and they understand that they're part of something much bigger. And a lot of them have left and gone to big league jobs. Annie went to the Twins for 10 months. And um, it took me a while to lure her back, but she came back. Because you get the freedom of expression. It's okay to fail here. And we become a society that looks and goes, mm, you got to test it somewhere before you try it here. Focus groups, Really? Mike. Come on. <laughs> so, like, like, is there a promotion over the years that you are just, like, that probably didn't get the traction you wanted it to get, but you are super proud of. Like, is, is there one that you just uh, like thought was going to be the bee's knees and just like kind of fell flat? Um, I thought Voodoo Night was really funny. <laughs> I really did. I had a friend who was going out of business, <laughs> and she had five hundred Voodoo dolls and pins. So I buy those from her. You know, for. 12 cents or sure. something. Enough so she can blow town. Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil is the best seller for 108 weeks or something. Takes place in Savannah. So we're, it's with a Charleston club. We're going to play in Savannah. I mean, we're going to play Savannah. Kind of a mystical city. And they have Lady Chablis, a cross-dresser. It's got everything. And so we call it voodoo night and we have ladders at the gates and you have to walk under them and glass breaking <laughs> and everything is going to be set up perfectly until bill and i are golfing one day and he goes you know this voodoo thing is going to blow up in your face and i said why and he said you're going to end up canceling it's a dumb idea and i said i never cancel i'm going to go away right through with it why do you say that and he goes it's good friday oh no <laughs> jeez Right. So when okay. we announced it, <laughs> he was right. The phone lines melted. Right, because you're down south, and that's the Bible Belt they also. Were, don't yeah. forget. Yeah, but yeah. there's another one. I gave away Bible Belt Buckle Night. <laughs> Didn't get a, you know, Tanya Harding mini bat night. <laughs> you know, but, but the one was my favorite that I thought really never got it to do was, you know, was the <laughs> instant replay by the mimes. We announced... 
That's genius. We we announced That's genius. We, I thought it was brilliant. We announced that we were going to make instant replay obsolete. You know, you get tired of watching the same play 27 times from 38 different angles and blah, blah, blah. So the St. Paul Saints announced that they're going to make instant replay obsolete. We don't even have a replay board. We didn't point that out. I mean, there's a little nine-inch black and white television nailed to the left field wall. That was our, because we'd make fun of replays. That was our replay board. So we sent out an announcement that St. Paul Saints are going to make instant replay obsolete. <laughs> Ten people show up from the press. They're like waiting. In the third inning, there's a bang, bang play at first. Five mimes jump on top of the dugout <laughs> and recreate it. <laughs> like dressed, like dressed, like mimes. Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I'm standing there and I said to Murray, I said, Bill, what do you think? He goes, have you heard a sound, Mike? I said, actually, I haven't. He said, the loudest thing out there are the mimes. <laughs> this is a bad sign. In 30 years of doing improv, I've never seen anything tank like this is about to. I'm like, this is not warming my soul, Bill. <laughs> this is not helping. And all of a sudden, the kid in the front row picks up a fully loaded red and yellow hot dog, throws it at the mime. It was beautiful. We had the biggest food fight. Game was held up for seven minutes or something. I'm sending interns back when you could call them interns out to holiday stores and super value to buy all the packs of hot dogs we could so they'd have something to throw at the mimes. We're selling them, you know, 10 dogs for... <laughs> Maybe that was the impetus of last year's food fight. That's exactly, yeah. that's exactly what it was. Which was also brilliant. But uh -huh. I loved that. I loved that one and it never really got its due. But so many, and you mentioned Bill and, and there's a big cut out of of bill murray over your shoulder right now that i keep looking at um it's, I, I would imagine you get asked about him a lot and and your relationship how, how 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 would you how would you describe your relationship with mr murray we're like minds on mm -hmm. this on this journey um he is hands down the best famous person i've ever met he is the most accessible he doesn't have a handler. He drives himself around. I know that because we share two Mustangs in Charleston. And I'm so sick of people. They're both mine. And I pull up at the car wash and they go, hmm, what are you doing with Mr. Murray's car? I go, stealing it. Want to buy it? He rode in here and it's available today for $100,000. <laughs> it's my car. And, you know, we love the same music. We love baseball. He's a Cub fan, which makes him a great foil for me. Yeah. You know, we have battles back and forth. But mostly and, it's... Well, you said you don't like yes men. So, yeah, yeah there it is. And he, he comes here and signs autographs for everybody that asks. And that's a role model. When I was with the Tigers, I talked Alan Trammell into putting a player at the end of each dugout after the ball game to sign autographs because the biggest problem we have is kids can't get to their heroes. And the example I use on opening day when he's here, I get all of my saint warriors around home plate and I go, who's that over there? And somebody will go, that's Bill Murray. And I go, what's he doing? Signing autographs. And I said, and so will you. That's, there are very few rules here, but that's one of them is every kid that asks you. And for 27 years, these teams have been, monuments to understanding that the kids come first you know you can brush by a parent if you think maybe he's a collector 
but you never brush by a kid. And Bill just signs everything, and that's preposterous. A guy hitting 220 at the big league level won't sign an autograph, but Bill Murray, maybe one of the 10 most recognizable visages in America, will. My grandpa once chewed out Clint Hurdle. Oh, yes, indeed. This is when the Royals uh, did spring training down in Florida. And he went down there and he, he saw George Brett signing all these autographs for all these kids. And Clint Hurdle just buzzed by them all. And my, I'll never forget, my grandpa absolutely chewed out Clint Hurdle. How dare you? All that just like, oh my God. You know, and it was just like, I, I was taken back at that moment. Like, like wow. That that's that's powerful, you know, and and you and you see it, and and, and I'm at so many sports events and so many sports venues, and, and you really get to see, um, and and there are a lot of those autograph hawks, right, and those those eBay types that are just out, you know, to and it's got, a business, yeah, it's a business, and they're they're you know they're going through their folder as the person's walking up to find the right spot, and then they whip out the glossy of the right person, and then they know exactly what they're doing and how, how to do it, and you know some of the athletes oblige, but but to see a kid. And, and how much that means to a kid, right? And it's just... And you get a fan for life without doing anything. Right. You, just, you just take this ball and you hand it to a kid and you go, see that guy over there? Go get his autograph. Yeah. And she runs over there, gets his autograph, and baseball's her favorite sport. And when she turns 20... She comes to the ballpark I'll, for reasons she doesn't even remember. I had an opportunity, and, and John McEnroe was, was a childhood... Um, the hero of mine. I just, I adored everything about him. And, and I just had, I tried to emulate him on the tennis court. I broke a lot of rackets, but so, but, but I, I got a chance to interview him at Excel Energy Center several years ago. And I was just, I remember because I interview so many athletes and I don't, I don't get, I'm, I'm not awestruck by, by any of them because it's a job, right? It's what we do, right? And, uh, but, but when McEnroe came into town, it was like I rewound to my childhood. I'm like, oh, my God. I was legitimately nervous to interview this man. And, like, my heart was racing. My palms were sweating. My mouth was cotton. And I was just like, oh, God, please don't ruin all those years that I've held you on such high regard, right? And just if, if he's a dink to me right now, I'm I'm gonna be buried, right? He was awesome. He was awesome. I'm so glad. And it was just I had this this wave of relief come over me, like all those years didn't just get wasted. That's awesome, you know. And it's just it's it's it's, it's so indelible how athletes um, can 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 have such a hold on on youngsters and and uh, and how that develops over time is is fascinating to me and I, I'm I'm really glad to hear you say that that your players are are accountable in that way and that and that it's set from the very top with it's, Mr. Murray. It, it, yeah, it's part of the it's it's part of the job description. And I just want to ask you now about your grandfather. Was he a smart man? My grandfather? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Well, he was a smart Alec, but yes, he was also smart. Okay, because I followed John Shareholds and that Kansas City Royal Organization into Fort Myers, right? Yep. 1991, I went in there. For 15 years, they still, despite our best efforts, Billy Smith and the Twins organization, Kirby. Yep. They still remember the Royals. So he picked his heroes the right way. Yeah. And when he ripped Clint, he was right. 
they never forgot Fort Myers. To this day, they've got the Red Sox and the Twins. And I'll tell you, 50% without even having been there in 10 years still remember the Royals. That's how good the Royals organization was. If you had a dinner, there were three Royals players there. And not, you know, guys like me. Not the front office yeah, yeah, yeah. or the bottom. Mm-hmm. I meant they had Brett and they had... Uh, Hershiser and you know they had guys yeah that's awesome there was really an organization that and Sherholtz went grabbed Bobby Cox and went right to Atlanta and did the same thing just put the fans yeah and, I was and I first. was yeah I was sad when he went to the Braves but anyway that's a whole nother show but so so now uh do you have a favorite Bill Murray movie like do you have one that, that oh yeah I I I make no bones about it. I cried for the last 15 minutes of St. Vincent I loved it. Oh, okay. I loved St. Vincent. Lost in Translation was a piece of art. It was brilliant. It really was. And he's, we think right now, shooting um, On the Rocks with Sofia Coppola, which may well be a prequel, sequel, whatever it is. He's pretty tight-lipped about it, but he loves working with her. But I thought that St. Vincent caught exactly what he does so well in this understated. I also love the um, Eleanor, the, the, the Roosevelt uh, movie, because I know how long he worked at that. Put how, how hard he put yeah, his and he really Yeah, he really worked. I mean, he's made 100 movies, and the guy is an absolute technician, you know. And we were wa- it's a great story that, that no one will hear until this moment, but it tells you everything you need to know about Bill Murray. So we go to New York to see the Cubs and the Yankees play, open the new mall yard. I'm sorry, the new Yankee Stadium. And uh, and afterwards, sometimes your jabs are so subtle. They're just they're, they're, uh, yeah, they're brilliant. Go ahead. So we're walking back from the ball game, mm-hmm. and they're making a, a movie with um, gosh, I can't remember his name, but Sue. She was. One of the um, um, not desperate housewives, but but well, anyhow, Sex in the City. Okay. So with Sarah Jessica Parker there you go. and Richard Gere, maybe okay. those are the two people, and they're filming at the hotel, and we're walking along, and every grip, every electrician, every carpenter, every street cop. He's going, hey, Bill, it's good to see you. And Bill would stop and call him by name and say, yeah, I worked with you and going back to Tootsie. And in, because, you know, and I'm just admiring this. And he's talking to each one. It's two hours. And then he says to me, hey, you, you want to meet? The, and I'm like, no, I'm not really into that kind. And he loved that because every person making that movie stopped. And I'm thinking to myself, gosh, it's the people behind the camera. And he always told me that. He sits and watches till the very end of the credits. I said, why do you do that? And he said, because I remember when I got my first credit, how important it was. And I sat through the whole movie to see it. And he doesn't leave. Wow. But walking down there two and a half hours... So he said hello to every and I'm not I'm not telling you this wasn't a conversation of an hour with five guys. This was everyone who stopped and they reminisce. I worked with you on this one. I worked with you on Lost in Translation. Oh, I worked on what about Bob with you? That that's really a wonderful measure of a 
just of a human being. Yeah, it really is. And yeah. I, but I see some of that in you when you're walking around the ballpark, to be honest with you. Well, just, we both recognize our customers. Yeah. I mean, these people made this all possible. Yeah. This, they, they did that. Yeah. People are like, look at this. These are my last ones. 800 thank you notes by hand. Been doing it for 27 years. Those, all are, my, those all are, my, are actual post stamps on them. Yeah, and it's all my season ticket customers. And people, I write them a little note. People still write letters. Yeah. It's good enough. And people go, why would you do that? It's such a waste of time. And I go, really? To write to my 800 best customers that, that buy 2,000 seats in and out? There are people, we have 54 people, which translates into about 250 seats who've been with us since the first year in. Good for you. And now they say to me, you're a little arthritic, aren't you, Mike? I go, hmm. See, I bet, but that, you know what? You know who does that? You know who writes thank you letters like that and no. takes that time? Somebody who's esteemed. <laughs> I have one last question for you. Okay. And I, I started, I went into this. This is my random rankings. Uh, you've been part of so many minor league baseball teams. What is the best minor league baseball team name? What is your favorite? Oh, man. There, there's so many good ones right now. Well, is, do you have one that sticks out? As, yes, I do. And it's okay. because we it's it's because um, I don't own it anymore, but I did own a piece of it. But the background will explain to you why I loved it. When I got to Charleston, I went to Charleston and they were the rainbows and they were they were affiliated with the White Sox in 59 when my dad had them. So there was some heart involved, but they were then the river dogs. So I went down there just like a south side of Chicago klutz would be. And I'm like, River Dogs, huh? <laughs> what kind of name is that? That's the stupidest name I ever heard in the world. I, I didn't like the rainbows. I hated the miracle, which was a Jimmy Buffett idea for our club in Fort Myers. I, that's my least favorite. And I'm looking at this thing and I go, River Dog, what a stupid name. <laughs> I'm going to change this name in about 12 seconds. I may even have a legitimate name the team contest. And it's not a vet has ever done that. And quietly a guy comes up to me and he goes, do you know where the name Riverdog came from? Uh -oh. I said, I got no <laughs> this is like, clue. I'm, I'm, this is like, I'm sensing another Good Friday story. Go ahead. He said, in the 1880s, oh, when you had rats on the wharf, the kinder, gentler gender didn't want to read about wharf rats in the newspaper, so they called them river dogs or river puppies. And those was another word for rats. I'm like, go back to the office. I'm like, sorry, you're all rehired. I, it was a huge mistake on my part. River dogs is a great name. <laughs> Outstanding. <laughs> Mike Vack, thank you so much uh, for taking this time. I, I, I so appreciate you. I so appreciate this organization. I really appreciate this field. Uh, and, and again, thanks for taking the time out. Continued success because I, I just it's remarkable what you've accomplished here and what I'm sure undoubtedly you will continue to accomplish. So thank, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. A real pleasure. And, and one final note, just reconsider bringing back the mime replay. I just... <laughs> Love to see that. We're bringing, we're bringing back disco. That's enough for me.
And that wraps it up. Thank you so much for listening to Perk at Pod on zonecoverage.com. Be sure to follow them on all social media platforms. They're doing some amazing things here at this space. I'm telling you what, some really smart people up in this building for sure. And follow me on all social media platforms as well, if you will, uh, from Instagram to YouTube to Twitter, Facebook. You can usually find me at Perk at Play, one word. Perk. Find out what he'll say. Perk.